You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Well, good evening. Uh, Turn with me to Acts 1 in your journals. Those are cool, aren't they? Those are sweet. The Connections team had that idea. You can thank them. Super pumped about it. Uh, Nikki asked me today, she's like, so what happens when all these people find out that you're a terrible preacher and they've already committed? (laughs) Uh, It's a good question. It's a good question. This hasn't been done before in our context, so I hope you're I hope you know what you're getting into. All right. In the first book, O Theophilus, you see the book of Acts is really volume two in Luke's account of the life of Jesus Christ, his work and his person. Uh, This is the second volume of Luke's gospel account, and really the first volume is his gospel account. So this follows, you kind of have to take this as, you know, this is the two towers and Luke's gospel is the fellowship of the ring, except there's no return of the king and there was no the hobbit. Well, unless you count the rest of the Bible, but Luke didn't write any of that. So this is the second book of, of Paul's, uh, excuse me, of, of Luke's writing. And so he's going to explain, and we have, we have a, little, a little linchpin here of, of where, where the crux of the beginning and ending of the story is. He says, This first book, O Theophilus, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until. He gives us a little point, a little, uh, I don't even know what you call it, but a little balancing point. And he says, until the day when he was taken up, really everything kind of hinges on his ascension, which is an underrated time and aspect of the gospel. We normally talk about his his perfect life and his uh, uh, propitiatory death, his his, uh, sin absorbing death, and then we also talk about his life-giving resurrection, but we very rarely talk about his ascension and what that, what that means for us. Well, the book of Acts is really Luke's attempt to highlight what happens if Jesus no longer works here, but works up there. What happens if his ministry is not here, but his ministry is from afar? And that is really what we're dealing with in the gospel of Acts or the book of Acts. This uh, book has been titled the Acts of the Apostles. Probably even in your journal, you can see that on the, on the top of your, of your book title, The Acts of the Apostles. And while that's not a horrible title, it probably is just a little bit misaccurate. It's probably not the greatest sense of what's going on here because the reality is, yet again, as, as Luke highlights here, this is about the Acts of Jesus who's still alive. Now, he does that through the apostles, and as we're going to see, we're going to see a, a very pronounced character uh, of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. He is very pronounced. So you could actually even call this the acts of the Spirit, but even then, you'd have to realize that the Spirit is only acting not on his own authority, but on the authority of Jesus. So really, in the greatest sense possible, this is 
the acts of Jesus, just he's ministering and working in a different place. So if Luke's gospel was all about what Jesus began to do and teach, then the book of Acts is all about what Jesus continues to do and teach. You see, Luke focuses on Jesus' earthly life and ministry. The book of Acts focuses on Jesus' heavenly life and ministry. See the difference there? So Luke, the gospel, is about Jesus' earthly life and ministry. The book of Acts is all about Jesus' present heavenly life and ministry. See, the story of the resurrected Jesus isn't over yet, and praise God. We don't want it to be over. Our faith would be in vain if it was over. See, the book of Luke traces, if you want to think, this might be an oversimplification, but if you want to think about it this way, Luke, the gospel, traces where Jesus is going. If you ask yourself, well, where, where is Jesus going in the book of Luke or in the gospel of Luke? Well, in all gospels, Jesus is starting in Galilee and he's headed towards Jerusalem. And specifically, he's headed outside of Jerusalem to a cross. So everything is, it's kind of this pregnant motion towards Jerusalem and he ends up even outside Jerusalem and that becomes heavily significant. That's the gospel of Luke. Well, the book of Acts traces where, where the gospel is going. So Luke traces where Jesus is going. Acts traces where the gospel is going. And this has a uniquely different shape. See, this starts in Jerusalem, and then it works itself out. And I went ahead and uh, put a little picture together to help you with that, and I hope, aha, it works. Well, you can't really see it too well. I should have brightened that. But you see a little hourglass shape behind it all. And you can see the Gospel of Luke starts very broad and works its way very specifically towards Jerusalem to when he's on a cross. And then the ascension is where Luke uh, the Gospel of Luke ends in Luke 24. And as uh, Luke says in our, in our account in Acts, that's the, that's the point of togetherness. And then the book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, and then we'll get there next week in Acts 1-8, where Jesus says, you're going to take my gospel from Jerusalem, and it's going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then it's going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the book of Acts plays that, you can just track it geographically. The book of Acts traces that very line out. Acts 1 through 8 has everything to do with the apostles' ministry in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 10, they're in Judea and Samaria, and they're working towards ministering the gospel to the Gentiles. And then in, in Acts eleven twenty eight, you see Paul taking it to the uttermost parts of the earth, and then you see it kind of end because there was still more of the earth that Paul didn't get to. And as you can see, there's kind of an ellipses moment there and you begin to find, well, where are we geographically? And, and how do you describe us, where we are in, in, the, uh, in the West? Well, we're not done yet. The book of Acts is still alive. The resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, Jesus' heavenly life and heavenly ministry, it's still there. It's still at work. Jesus is still at work amongst, not necessarily apostles these days, but he's at work through people who have been spirit-filled just like you and me. A lot of biblical scholars even point out, this is very interesting, and I don't know where I'm at on this, but it's interesting to trace the advance of the gospel in kind of what we would say revivalistic swells and, and trace that geographically. How, you know, it's, it started out in Jerusalem, of course, in the early church, and then it began to spread westward to the Mesopotamian world as Paul takes it. And then you start to see in like 
15th century, 16th century, where the Reformation hits in, in Europe and the gospel begins to gain clarity and gain traction and people begin to reform and understand this is the true gospel. And then, of course, in the Great Awakening in the 17th and 18th century, in the Second Great Awakening, you start to see over in the West, it keeps moving westward and swells and in revival. Well, we're not done because we don't experience this here now, but China is booming with a swell of the gospel. And uh, the, the entire uh, uh, Asian continent is sensing this renewal, and it's kind of happening underground, and it's happening without the tabloids and, and, the, and the newspapers getting a hold of it because it's a silent movement, it feels. But it is, a, it is a movement of fire. The Spirit of God is moving. And you have to think that the next little stage in, in the bit is going to head back to the Jerusalem world. You can already feel the tensions in the Middle East, and I'm not predicting anything coming up. I'm not trying to say, like, our time, is co- our time is always coming. Jesus could come back any day, right? We don't have this all figured out, but the point is, Jesus' earthly life and ministry, it's not done, and we're a part of it. The story of the acts of Jesus, or the acts of the apostles, is all about Jesus' perfect work through imperfect people. We're not done, but you have to look at even ragtag groups like this. No, no offense, I'm part of it. I feel a part of it. And this feels, in one sense, small and maybe even to the world insignificant. But this is all because we have a Jesus who ministers and lives in heaven right now and who is at work to take the gospel a little bit deeper into us and a little bit deeper into communities like Black Lake, Ohio. And he's intent to see people from all walks of life hear the news that Jesus died for their sins and was raised for their justification and now lives for their eternal life. We carry that same ministry. But it's all about Jesus' perfect work. And understand, once you get a glimpse of what Jesus is doing, it is perfect. It's a little bit of the magic of this world to sense Jesus taking sinful people, people who have no right to have access to God eternal, and set them right, and set them at a course of peace in this life and in the next, and have their life reinvented and reinvigorated and even resurrected in the middle of death. It is a perfect work, and it happens amongst imperfect people like us. There's two temptations that you'll see as we begin this book that really plague us and that plague the characters that that we'll meet here in just a little bit. There's two temptations, and they're mainly this. One, there's a temptation to think, that you are good enough to do this work on your own. And you will see people try. And you will see people forget the power of God, that only Jesus has the power and the authority to raise the dead. That's the work we're doing. That's the work we're called to. No less, no more, nothing greater. But only Jesus has the power to do it. Now, he'll use you. But don't think for a second. Don't be tempted to think that you can do this on your own. We can tend to think that because God gave us this work in the first place, that we are inherently good enough, powerful enough, pretty enough, successful enough, rich enough, competent enough to do what Jesus has called us to do. And my friend, the temptation is to think that this is somehow merit-based, that this is somehow a sense of deservedness. My friend, Jesus only works by grace. That's how he only works Jesus only uses bad people, as one pastor said. Jesus only uses bad people because bad people are all that he has to choose from. There are no good people. 
So you're not out here thinking like, this is it. This is the team. This is the eternal destiny team that Jesus is going to form. And because of our awesomeness, we are going to transform the world. No, that's actually the opposite of how it works. People, people need to see our confession, not our competence. And we'll see that you are, the temptation is to think that you are good enough on your own. The temptation is to become wholly independent of God's power and presence. And this really shows up when we get frustrated at God's providence in our lives, right? When someone puts a, when, when God somehow puts an annoying person in our path and we're like, that, that person doesn't help me meet my plan. That person doesn't help me task my next, my next kingdom task list. What are you doing, person? Get out of my way. I'm doing spiritual work here. You're probably tempted to think that this is all about you. It also happens when we treat people as a means to our own end. Or it happens when we seek to defend our goodness instead of actually display our badness and display Jesus' goodness for us. It could be a part of that temptation. The second temptation, though, is to think that you are too bad to be doing this work at all. That you are too bad to be doing this work at all. We think that because we all have our own problems, well, I, I shouldn't, and I, I certainly can't talk about spiritual things with that person. That person seems to have their act together, or at least more than me. I, you don't understand. I have a past. I have a history. I'm, I'm scared I'm going to repeat myself. I don't know if really this work, this disciple-making work is, is for me. If people really knew my deepest, dark secrets, they would never listen to a thing I said. Temptation is to think you're too far gone. But both of these temptations, you understand, both of these temptations have at the heart this dependency on self either way. Both of these temptations fail to realize that our, whole, our only hope in this ministry rests never within, whether in our goodness or freedom from our badness. It has everything to do with the power and the authority of Jesus upon whom the Spirit of God rests on us. And with both of these temptations, it's, it's this focus on our strength, not Jesus's. Both of these temptations wrestle with our own personal competence and not Jesus's. Our work for Jesus rather than, or our own work for Jesus rather than his work for us. These two temptations really are a, a, a slavery to ourselves. And what we need to understand is that there is another understanding. There's another faith-based motivation for what we're doing and it's depending on on Jesus. So tonight, I want to look at our, our passage here, Acts 1, 1 through 5, and look at four basic things that you'll see right out of the gate where Luke is trying to get us to see this is not about what we do for Jesus, but what Jesus has been already doing from eternity past and what he's doing right now to, to make this thing happen. So what, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus's work for the apostles? Even at the very beginning of this book, we see Jesus' work for, in, and through the apostles highlighted as the main event. The main event is watching Jesus at work, not these apostles. The first thing we see, he commissioned the apostles. He commissioned them. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. You see, it was Jesus's commissioning. It was, it was his work to be done. He was the one who gave the command. You remember, 
back in, uh, back in the Great Commission. Remember, remember what this command was? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I commanded, and I am with you always. And there's two things that are really, really important for us to see. Number one, this commissioning is based on Jesus' authority alone. He says, you do this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You don't do this in your own name. I mean, you, you have no power or authority to baptize anybody into anything. It, it wouldn't make sense if we baptize people into Hunter Sipe and Good Shepherd Bible Church. And it'd be weird. You'd probably throw me out and say, like, you cult leader, you get out of here. It's weirdo stuff. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to dunk people in my promises and raise them to new life and say, you're in Christ with all of us. That's what I want you to do. And you have the authority, you have the stamp of the divine triune name upon this action and, and, and sealing it to them. Go and do this in my name. And also don't forget the fact that this commissioning is accompanied by God's presence. Remember what he said at the end? I'm not leaving you. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving you. I'm going to go away, but I'm not, I'm not leaving you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus' presence here is actually putting his divine stamp on this commissioning. Even when we fail, Jesus is here at work getting it done in the invisible realm that we can't see. That's why it's, a, it's amazing to see, even as a preacher, this happens all the time where we feel like, well, I just blew that conversation or I just blew that sermon and we see the Spirit of God working in ways that I can't see or that I can't even make happen. He does it. His presence is here. He's with us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them. We have this commissioning by his authority and also by his presence. Luke says this in his gospel as kind of the, the way he frames up the Great Commission. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with that power. I'm doing a, a reading um, plan. And the reading plan I'm on right now is, is all about God's presence. It's a 30-day, like, like 28-day um, plan on, on about God's presence. And it just goes through the whole Bible and talks about God's presence. Can I read you a couple things that, that I'm learning and seeing from God's presence being amongst his people here, what his presence does for us? It strengthens us. It gives us rest. It leads us. It fills us. It equips us, and it sustains us. These are the things that God's presence amongst his commissioned people do for us. This is all, this is all Jesus is doing. He didn't just commission them, but he chose them. At the end of verse 2, after the commands that he gave them through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, whom he had chosen. He chose them. These guys didn't raise their hands. They, they didn't say, here I, here I am, Lord, send me. That wasn't, that wasn't these guys. That was another guy. It wasn't these guys. Jesus chose them. He literally called them. They didn't, they didn't really have a choice. It was like when, when light, Jesus said, like, let light come. It was like, light's like, sure, it's there. So when Jesus called them from where they were at, they came. He chose them. How are you going to change the world? How are you going to change the world? Well, Jesus seems to, to choose weird things to do it. People who fish for their job. 
what they do. They fish. How do we change the world? Jesus is like, I'm going to choose fishermen. I'm going to do it. Jesus says, I'm going to, who, who's, your, who's your bad person? Who's the town bad person? Well, that's a tax collector, sir. Okay, I want one of those. I want one of them. That's what, that's what I want. Matthew, come out. Come on, man. Follow me. Do I even have to mention the Apostle Paul? Apostle Paul? Trust me, these guys were not chosen because of their inherent goodness. Paul was a bad dude. Murdered Christians. Before Jesus literally knocked him off his high horse, he, he, was, a, he was a murderous, rebellious man. And God said, that's, that's who I want. See, we would choose the smart the powerful, the dynamic, the winsome, the pretty, the strong, the proven, the achievers, and the winners. Jesus chose the exact opposite. He chose the people who couldn't stop talking, the people who constantly put their foot in their mouth. He chose the faithless. He chose the really, really not confident people. See, Jesus chooses and he fills. He chooses, and he equips. He chooses, and he seals. That's what he does. It's his work. Can I read Paul's testimony about how Paul felt about God choosing him? Paul says this to the Corinthians in his first letter, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all who were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. That's Paul's testimony. I was the, I was the least, man. I, saw, I don't deserve any of this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. See, God chose them. And my friends, he's chosen you. It has nothing to do with your goodness. In fact, he may, he may have actually chosen you because of your badness. That may be why he chose you. But your badness doesn't disqualify you either. He chose you. It's his choosing, not your choosing. Again, you didn't sign up for this. You didn't raise your hand. He raised your hand for you. He said, come forward, and you came. He chose you. He also appeared to the apostles. He appeared to them. As Paul already said, he appeared. And to them, the appearance of the resurrected Savior was a little bit of everything, as you can imagine. I mean, it was like, it was this moment of, of this benchmark moment of their life. He, I remember when he appeared. I remember when I saw him for the first time. Remember the story of doubting Thomas? I mean, that guy probably lived that for the rest of his life, seeing the resurrected Savior. He appeared to them. The thing that highlights Jesus' work is that the apostles didn't believe in Jesus' resurrection, if you remember. And Luke even, Luke even highlights this. Can I read this from, from Luke 24? This is the last chapter in Luke's gospel. 
Now it was, Jesus had just resurrected from the grave. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the mother of, of uh, and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. And literally Jesus had just told them what was going to happen. Like it would be one thing if, they, if Jesus didn't tell them like, dude, he like straight up resurrected from the dead. And they're like, nah, that doesn't even make sense. Like, but Jesus told them, and they still were like, nah, that's an idle tale. That's, that's dumb. Quit your talking. Didn't even believe them. Remember the, remember the passage, Luke 24 goes on, this, this story about this road to Emmaus where Jesus appears to two of the disciples and it's kind of hidden from them, his, his presence, and Jesus opens the Bible to them and shows you this is what's been going on in the Old Testament all along. I was always going to die for your sins and I was always going to resurrect. It's, I, I, I'd love to have been there, have that commentary, it'd been like a podcast, something from that conversation would be great. But they get to the, they get to the house and they're, they're telling people, and remember what they said? Didn't our hearts burn within us? We, we didn't believe, and, and now we see it. Our hearts are burning within us as, as God opened the word to us, as he appeared to us. You see, Jesus wasn't just displaying historical proofs, although that certainly does happen, and the apostles take note of that. Remember, for Doubting Thomas, I mean, it, the historical proof, the actual scientific proof of nail scars in the hands, I've, I want to see that. And certainly Jesus gave it to him, but even more specifically, Jesus gave them spiritual proof. Jesus opened the eyes of their hearts to something that they could never unsee. And he said, it is because of that and the speaking about the kingdom. He says, uh, he appeared himself to alive after many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. It was also God's word being illumined to their hearts where they saw not just historically, but they saw spiritually of what Jesus is. That can only happen by the work of Jesus. That kind of spiritual awakening can only happen. We can't muster that up. We can't manufacture that. We can't look and see ourselves, the Spirit of God. And I hope you remember when, where you were or what you were doing when the Spirit of God opened your eyes. And it was like, like what Luther said, the gates of heaven opened up to you where you saw that and you realized, this is for me. If you've never had that experience, I would encourage you, let us, let us talk with you. It's not about the experience as much as, as you see your need for a Savior and you realize you have one. And maybe, maybe this is the moment where you're saying, like, I don't, I've been thinking this is all about me. I've been treating this whole Christianity thing as it's my work for Jesus. And I'm hearing for the first time, this is about his power for me, his strength for me. He didn't just appear to them, but finally he promised the Holy Spirit to them. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. This will rub our Western world the wrong way. Wait. Who loves to hear that, right? Wait. COVID has taught us one thing. Wait. And Jesus says, listen, I know you see me. I know I chose you. I know it feels like this thing's ready to roll. We as a church feel this, don't we? We're ready to roll. We have, we have everything. We, we've, been, we've been learned. We've been taught. We're ready to go. And Jesus says, don't you dare. Don't you dare take one ministry step until that promised Holy Spirit comes to you. Remember what Jesus' words to the disciples were? I am the true vine. You are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. 
but with me, you can literally turn this world upside down. And that's exactly what happened. Wait. Don't just hang out here. Don't move. Wait for the promised Holy Spirit. You wait until the power of God shows up because you're going to need that. What you can't ride on is your own power. You can't, don't even try that. In fact, I won't even let it happen, okay? But wait. Let me share, share with you some things. And actually, you, know, you notice two things here that actually um, Jesus says to the apostles. Number one, he, he invokes the Trinitarian name. We're learning this in our men's and women's group here. You see all three members of the Trinity right here. While, uh, verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, the Son, and this promise is the Spirit. Verse five, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You, you need all of God. You need God himself. You need this triune God. If you don't, if you don't have him, don't take a step. Don't, don't do it. So you notice the Trinity, and then you notice what the Spirit does exactly. And listen, listen to this from, because this will, this is amazing, from John 14 and John 16. Jesus says this about the Spirit in John 14. These things, did I put it up there? No, I didn't, I didn't. Uh, John 14, these things I have spoken to you while I was still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance of all that I have said to you. So look, look back, the Spirit will look back and he will bring to remembrance all that I said, but looking forward, he will teach you all things. John 16, I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare these things to you that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine. I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, so don't, don't you dare go. Don't you dare move a muscle until you have that Holy Spirit. Okay? We need all of God up in our business to, to get this done. So what's going on with this John's baptism and spirit baptism stuff? I, to be honest, I really don't think Luke is making a crazy statement here. I don't think Jesus is making a crazy statement. Going to give you like two minutes worth of, of explanation as to what this means in, in verse five. John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in John the Baptist's baptism, he, remember the, the word he kind of qualified his baptism as? He said, this is a baptism of repentance. So, so come, come to the Jordan and, and put all your sins in this water. Come have all your sins buried in this water. Remember what happens right after that? He sees Jesus and he says, this is the one. I'm not, I can't even like unstrap his sandal. I'm not even worthy to do that. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes into the Jordan and he goes down and John baptizes him and he comes out and you see the, the spirit coming on him and you, see the vo you hear the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son in who I am well pleased. So you have that Trinitarian focus there and you also have our sins placed in the water and Jesus coming out of the water and John saying, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin. Okay? So in John's baptism, it's like we put all of our sin into Jesus, and in Jesus' baptism, it's like he took all of that water of sin on himself, and God was very pleased for the Son of God to take all of, all of the world's sin upon himself. And then 
John, uh, and then Luke says here, well, this is Jesus' words, even John, John the Baptist's words, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I think this is kind of the moment where, where Jesus and Luke actually clarify, you, you now in the Spirit are getting all of the water of all that Jesus is dumped on you in full. You will be submersed in all that Jesus is for you. So in John's baptism, we, or we put all of our sins on him, and in, and in this uh, Holy Spirit, it's like God himself is like descending and pouring into our hearts. And that's why we say like we are full of the Spirit. Because there's, there's nothing of Jesus left over that, that we don't have. We have the Spirit of Christ, the presence of Christ in us. We have been submerged. There is no more dry because of what the Spirit has done for us. And we have come out a brand new person. So I don't, I don't want to pretend like anything crazy is going on here. I, bas- I basically think John is saying, Jesus took down all your sin, and he was treated as sin for you, and there is a day coming when you will be dumped and poured over by the Spirit, and you will have every blessing that Jesus has in him. I think that's what's going on there. And what a day to look forward to. And though these apostles were, in, in one sense, this was a pronounced day and a pronounced um, prophecy of what would happen to the apostles here. And there's a moment of specification where it seems like there's a pronounced presence of the Holy Spirit here. It is no less for us that we too have the full measure of the Spirit and nothing shortened uh, of Jesus's life, death, and, and reward. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus's work to save and resurrect this dying world is wholly dependent on Jesus's work for us, not our work for him. It's totally dependent on his accomplishments and not ours, his power, not ours, his competence, not ours, his kingdom, not ours. And that gives hope for little churches like us. That blacklight getting turned upside down isn't based upon our numbers or our offerings or who's being made an elder or what kind of ministry team is taken off. The kingdom of God doesn't work like that. The kingdom of God works in mostly invisible spiritual ways that we can't see, but he's at work. Part of his beautiful saving work is that God has promised to do this work for you and in you and through you, just like he was working for the disciples and in the disciples themselves and through the disciples. It's the same promise. It's the same work. Christ for you is that he has taken all of your sin, all of your imperfection, yes, even your past, even the things that nobody knows about nor wants to know about, all the struggles that, that you have, he has taken on himself and he has washed you thoroughly in his blood, even as we already sang that this morning or this evening. All of Jesus' accomplishments are yours. He has done this for you, just like he did this for the apostles. Jesus is at work in you. By his spirit, Jesus is still at work to bring the hope of the re- resurrection in the face of a thousand different deaths that you experience every week. The things that you face, the frustrations you feel, your plans not coming together, your day not going like it should be, the loss that you feel because of hurtful relationships and even death itself, these things Jesus is, at, is working in you, this need for resurrection, this need for new life in Christ, and he is still at work renewing you. Remember what Paul said, there outer self is wasting away every day. Our, our inner self is being renewed every day. It's like this resurrection constantly happening. Jesus is still at work in you, in his heavenly life and ministry. But my friends, the good news of the gospel is that he will also work through you. 
God is using your confession of your sin and of your need for a Savior. He probably won't use your competence. That's not normally how he works. He might. He can do whatever he wants. But he will use your confession. And I think this dying world around us more and more is realizing I don't, I don't need people's competence. I need, I need confession. And they might not, be able to, not, might not be able to articulate that. But you, I feel that. Don't, don't come to me all put together, man. You'll discourage me even more because I just don't feel that way. But if you're like me, man, I'll confess all day long. I've got problems. But I have a great Savior. I have a great hope. All of this hangs on Jesus and you can rest in his perfect work even as you work. He's with you. He's in you. He's for you. He's working through you. Let's pray. God, we commit our work to you. And Father, we don't want to take another step unless you, by your power and your authority, are with us, are filling us. Father, I pray that you might, this week, frustrate us Bring, bring things in our paths, peoples in our paths to frustrate our own plans and may the power of Christ rest upon us and may we minister in a way that's, that's helpful. May we minister in a way that, that you have ministered to us in grace. May we have mercy on people that we meet. May we put people's needs ahead of our own needs just like you've done for us. Father, we praise you for your heavenly ministry and we ask for more. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. by the Lord.